All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. I will be in chapter 12 this morning, and as John mentioned earlier, we are finishing up the book. So we are coming to the end of the, the story in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new to Redemption Hill, uh, we want you to know that this is typically what we do. We start in a book and we just work our way through uh, to the end of that book. And now we'll, we'll definitely throw in a thematic series occasionally. In fact, next week we're going on a three-week series on community life and what it means to really drill down with one another uh, as a church. Uh, so that'll be three weeks and then right after that we'll just bam, start the book of Titus and the New Testament. So this is what we do. We, we roll through the books of the Bible because we just think we can't add to or improve upon what God has said in his word. And so we're wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and I want you to think about this, that the, the Ecclesiastes is really a story, okay? It may not appear to be a story on the surface as you kind of look at the different components that make up this book. You have poetry, you have uh, some didactic material there, uh, but it's really a story. And, and if you think about story. Every good story has a plot line. It has movement, progression that is present in a story, okay? It doesn't matter if you're watching a Handy Manny episode, okay? Shout out for the kids this morning. Or if you're reading Shakespeare, right? There is, there is movement, progression. There's an introduction that gives us the setting and characters and the opening action. Then you have the rising action, this filled with, with, uh, with conflict and anti-climax moments. And then you, then you reach all the way to the climax of the story, right? And, 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 and then you have the, the, the falling action all the way to the resolution of the story. And, and what we have here this morning is, is the resolution to the story. And I like what the author um, Jim Harrison says about story. This is pretty good. Check this out. He says, the answer is always in the entire story, not just a piece of it, okay? Don't miss this. I want you to, to hear this thought from this, this author. The answer is always in the entire story, not just a piece of it. And this is certainly true for the book of Ecclesiastes, I mean, we have been on a winding turn, this journey, this quest that the, the preacher is on, and he's taken us to, to this pursuit of meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life. And we said the very first Sunday we entered into the book of Ecclesiastes that you really have to begin with the end of the book to understand the book as a whole. And so here we are. We're at the book, the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and, and this morning, I, I believe we're going to hear what amounts to the point of it all, okay? And not just the point of it all, as in the point of Ecclesiastes, but the point of it all, as in our lives, the, the whole of entirety of our being and why we are here. This is why we've looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, because at, at our core, we know that we are longing for something. We're longing for satisfaction and purpose and meaning in life. And when we look to find it in this world that we live in, the world seems quite unreasonable, right? It seems like it just doesn't add up. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us to a reason to live in this unreasonable world. So that's what we're going to think on this morning. I want us to, 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 to be encouraged to find freedom from vanity, by fearing God and keeping his commandments. You got that? Find freedom from vanity 
by, keeping God, by, by fearing God and keeping his commandments. Uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna see three primary encouragements as we roll through uh, verses eight through 14 of Ecclesiastes 12. And, and here's the first encouragement for us. It's found in verse eight. Simply this, see the vanity of this world. Okay, look, look at verse eight to see uh, what the, 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 the um, uh, author here writes for us. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So here we have the way the book began in chapter one, verse two, is the way it ends in chapter 12, verse eight. This is a summary statement. Again, it's a restatement of the thesis of the book. And I believe with some other scholars that this is not the words of the preacher anymore. In verse 8, we have the person, the narrator who wrote the prologue to the book, and now he's writing the epilogue of the book. And so he's summarizing his message, and he says, hey, this is what we're after again. He's saying, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. We walked in the front door with this message, and now we're exiting the book, and it's the same message. So where have we been? Let's just kind of reflect. This is the message of the book. Then what has the book of Ecclesiastes taught us? Well, remember, the preacher is wanting to take us on this journey, this story, so that we can see that all of these pursuits in life really are vain pursuits apart from living our lives for God. And so where has he taken us on this journey? Well, let's just look at, at several of these. Uh, first, he's, he's taken us to wisdom. He's saying, man, you can have all the answers in the world, but you know what? That's not gonna ultimately satisfy you. Then he moves in to pleasure. And in chapter two, it's wine, women, sex, without limits. And you know what he says at the end of the day? That doesn't satisfy us either. Then we can look at this, this, this preacher who was a king, okay? And remember, why he's called the, the preacher, the teacher, as some translations put it, is he's one who is assembling people to hear his voice, to hear his words of wisdom. And so this, this person was, was a king figure. He had everything, certainly accomplishments that filled his resume. He had Plenty of opportunity for leisure and entertainment. He had possessions. He, he had gardens and, and vineyards and he built houses. I mean, you know, you, you just, all of, all of the, the possessions that we could ever hope to acquire, this man experienced it all. He, he sought to find satisfaction in work, satisfaction in having power, reputation, wealth, and riches. Even family in a long life, he would say, look, all of these pursuits, all of them are never going to ultimately deliver on the deepest longings of our heart. So this is what he's saying. He's saying it's vanity. It's meaningless. You won't find the ultimate reason to live in the midst of these pursuits right here. And so can we just kind of pause and answer the question? I mean, are, are you prone to finding ultimate satisfaction in these things? I mean, surely if we're being honest, we, we would have to say that, that there is this ebb and flow of our life. I mean, for maybe some of you who, who have never tasted the, the grace of salvation that Jesus offers us, perhaps some of these things are keeping you from God altogether. 
because you think it's in those pursuits that is going to, to ultimately bring satisfaction in life to you. But we know, even for those of us who have received Christ, who have believed in him, that we still slip into finding our identity and satisfaction in many of these pursuits. And let's point something out. Let's be very clear here. These pursuits are not inherently bad, okay? There's nothing inherently evil about any of these things. But but what happens is we take these good things that God has made and we turn them into God-like things. We take good things and we make them ultimate things where ultimately they then usurp the throne of God in our life. They, they replace our allegiance that should go to God. They replace our affections that rightly belong to God. And they begin to push him out of the equation at worst and marginalize him at best. This is how idolatry works in our life. We take the good things that God has made and we turn them into ultimate things and these ulti- then, then what has become ultimate will never truly satisfy us. So we need to hear this word that, that this world is vain, it's vanity. This is a message we desperately need to hear. And I pray that as we've trekked through these 12 chapters that, that this is connecting in your heart. This is resonating as you have experienced life or as you will continue to experience life. I mean, what a great truth for us to grasp. And, and let me just say this. What a, a great conversation to be able to have with people all over the place, whether it's your neighborhood, your work. I mean, people at their core, we have to understand. I mean, Ecclesiastes even told us this, that God has set eternity into our hearts, right? So uh, there is this longing within us for that which is going to bring meaning and reason and satisfaction. And the preacher's saying, look, don't look to find it in this world. Find it in God. That's number one. Number two, he's gonna tell us in verses nine through 12 to heed the words of the wise. Heed the words of the wise. Look, uh, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. Okay, let's not forget this. It's found in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And we're gonna see that we're exhorted in, in the Bible over and over again to, to prize wisdom, to seek wisdom, to find wisdom, to treasure wisdom. And here we have wisdom. Look at verse nine. It says that, that the, the preacher is wise. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So, so did, you, did you catch that? It says that he was wise, that he taught knowledge and, and he studied it. He, he listened carefully. He, it says he weighed them out. In other words, he had an ability to listen really, really well and then to reflect on what he heard. And if we're being honest, I mean, for some of us, it's really just difficult to kind of lock in and listen, Right? For others of us, it's, 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 it's one thing to listen, but then to listen and actually take some time just to kind of be still and to reflect on what we're hearing and to process. I mean, that's a whole nother kind of part of the equation. But then ultimately, what we want to do is not just listen and ponder and reflect, but we want to put these things into practice with our life. 
And this is what the preacher was doing. He was, he was weighing out and, and he was arranging Proverbs. He knew how to take what he heard, process it, and then say, this is how we should live life. And that's the goal. And that's the goal of every time we encounter God's truth. I mean, this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's the wise person. The fool is the one who hears and does nothing with that truth. So the, the preacher is, is one who is wise. He knows how to weigh out these Proverbs and arrange them. And then it says that he sought to find, verse 10, he sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. This is his method, okay? And this is a pretty good method, one that you should remember today, okay? Even if you, I mean, even if, you know, you're not a believer and, and you're not to that place yet, I mean, this is, this is actually really practical wisdom across the board, right? He says, he sought to find words of delight. In other words, the way that, that you present, communicate information is very important, right? I mean, most of you are awake right now, okay? This is a good thing. You feel me? You understand what I'm saying, right? It's like, so how we communicate, how we deliver is very important, but not more important than what we say, but they're both important. So he sought to, to craft it well, to word it well, but he looked for words of truth. And this is our job, to fit our context. This is, this is my job, John's job on Sunday mornings. But listen, this is all of our job. God has given us truth, not so that we would only understand it and live it out, but that we might share it with others, right? It's this kind of, I like to call it this kind of missiological spiral that should go on in our lives, okay? We hear the word, we seek to obey the word, and then we don't, you know, because it's just like what we talked about with the preacher. I mean, we can hear it and stop there, or we could hear it and obey it, and we could stop there. But as one pastor that I really respect says, does the word of God stop with you, or does the word of God spread through you? What a great question to ask ourselves. So this is a, a book of wisdom. And, and what do words of wisdom accomplish? This is so good. Look in verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And so what he's, what he's saying is they're like goads. These, these little um, kind of like a... Uh, little, little pricks that would, a shepherd might use to, to prod along the sheep. It's almost like we could think about, I don't know if any of you watched the Preakness Stakes yesterday. I mean, this is the follow-up to the, the greatest two minutes in sports, right? The Kentucky Derby. I mean, some of you know I'm from Kentucky, so got to give a little shout-out there. But, uh, but what, what happens, right? When they, they, they turn the corner and down the stretch they come, what happens? Man, that little jockey, Mario, what's his name? Gutierrez, is that how you say it? Um, he, I think he, he, I'll have another, had another yesterday, won the Preakness um, and, 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 and how did that happen? Well, he ran down Bodemeister again because he is just getting prodded along and whipped and encouraged to keep running down the track. And this is what wisdom is to do for us. It's to motivate us. It's to spur us along. It's to, it's to guide and not just to kind of keep us going faster, but to keep us going faster in the right direction. It prods us along. It guides us along. Words of wisdom are like goads and, and like nails, firmly fixed. Probably has to do with keeping us established and, and rooted and grounded where we need to be. 
and it says that they're given by one shepherd. I would tend to agree with with the translators of the ESV and other scholars when they give the the word shepherd a capital S here, that that, that all wisdom ultimately is is the source of that wisdom is in God. God is the the source of wisdom. The, The Bible talks over and over again how that God is our shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for his sheep. And so God is constantly directing us and guiding us and pushing us along so that we will live our lives in a particular kind of way. And then verse 12, he says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end and much study is weariness of the flesh. So some of you probably love to read, right? I mean, we are in, after all, one of the the most uh, intellectual spots in not just America, but the world, right? So you have, you know, your, your, your Nook, your Kindle, your iPod, you've got your library card, Maybe some of you true nerds got your life. And don't, don't lie. You can, it's okay. You can fe- confess that around here, okay? Maybe you have, you know, not just Medford, Cambridge. I mean, you have like multiple library cards. You're, you're all about it. You've got your bookshelves, you know, stacked up. Books don't fit no, any longer on the shelf, so you have to like stack them on top of the books that are already there or double stuff them on this. Anybody been there and done that? Yeah? I mean, I love books. Grad school will help you do that really well. And so, man, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to love books, but, but did you notice know, this? Like, I mean, books are just going to continue to be published again and again and again and again and again and again. And for those of you who have been through college and grad school and more grad school and more and more grad school, then you know that there is much weariness and and so much study, right? But what he says is he says, look, be careful, be warned, beware not to go beyond the, the, the true words of wisdom that God has revealed, okay? It's not that there's not value in other Christian literature or even secular literature for that matter, okay? All truth is God's truth. We can find wisdom and, and many different uh, read, reads, but, but the encouragement is to place God's truth above all other truth, all other, all other material. And so let me, let me just ask you, I mean, we, we, we want to be a church that's constantly saying, man, we depend on this. We want to go back to this, this book, God's word in the Bible. This is what we want to stake our lives on. It's, it's our authority for the faith, our faith and our practice in life. And we can be that kind of church, but, but practically, individually, are we hungering for God's word? Are we thirsting for God's word? I mean, like, is it, is it, is it difficult to go through your day and, and not have some time just to soak it up? To read, to study, to dig, to meditate, to marinate, to memorize God's word? Jesus, in Matthew 4, exemplifies someone who loved the word because he actually quotes Deuteronomy 8 here. And what did he say? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Don't forget this verse. We we should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is, the, the word of God is our spiritual sustenance. 
and, and everywhere. I mean, shouldn't we long to know it from cover to cover? To, to, to know it so well, the man, it just flows out of us. It's just all up in our heart and our life is where we can't, we can't speak, but to have the wisdom of God just pouring out of our life. And listen, by the way, you don't always have to quote the verse and the referent, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's just part of you now when you really are living on it, living by it. Now, of course, it's good to point and let people know where you're coming from. But these, this, is, this is the encouragement here. It's a hunger and a thirst for, for the, the wisdom of God. So we, we, we see early on to, that we need to see the vanity of this world, and, and, then, and then we need to heed the words of the wise. But, but then now look in verse 13, and this is where we're going to wrap up today. He says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So our last encouragement this morning, and this is the conclusion of the matter. This is the end of of the whole deal here, the point of it all. What does he say? He says, fear God, keep his commandments. All right? So it's, it's not going to be in, you know, the pursuit of pleasure and wealth and work and reputation and power. And you fill in the blank. Ultimate satisfaction is going to be found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. So let's just break this down here. What, is it, what does it mean to fear God? This is, a, this is a, an encouragement that we've seen the preacher throughout the course of the 12 chapters mention at least six times. Not to mention it's even the, the, the ideas found last week when he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, let the notion of God color and flavor and influence everything in your life. And so here he is summarizing the argument of the book And and what does it mean to fear God? Well, simply put, it's to have this attitude of reverential awe before God, okay? So, So we see God for who he is, and we can't help but say, wow, you are worthy. You are awesome. There is none like you. And so I am going to live my life in light of this truth. I want you to reflect on a quote here from uh, a theologian from Princeton Seminary during the last century. His name is John Murray. And uh, he has this to say about the fear of God. This is a really, this is a really loaded quote, so I, I want you to check it out and, and, and weigh it out. He says, The fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which constrains adoration and love. Now let's just stop right there, okay? So to fear God, which is where godliness is found is the kind of fear that moves us to to adoration and love, okay? Because some of you may be looking at the phrase fear God, fear of God, and you're like, Tanner, what is that? Am I supposed to be frightened of God? Am I supposed to be terrified of of God here? How does does this work? And this is not the, the fear of a slave who has an unjust, harsh master. This is the fear of a son who wants to please his father. So it's fear that moves us to to praise God, to adore God, to worship God, and to love God. Now, 
Second sentence. It's the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship. How's that? And look at this. And all of these on the highest level of exercise. So let me just pause there and say, how do we, how do we grow in this? I mean, this is, so, this is so relevant, right? We come to church on Sunday, we worship, we sing. I mean, like, is our heart there? Are, are we really engaged and as we talk about a lot, I mean, worship isn't just like a, an hour deal on Sunday. It's an all the time thing. It's a daily grind and it's a daily opportunity. And so how can we grow in our awe, reverence, honor and worship and exercise these at the highest level? Well, here's the secret, I believe. How do we fear God? Well, we acquire greater thoughts of God. We have to know God truly. Look, none of us, here's a little theology for you. None of us can know God comprehensively. Why? Because he's infinite, right? We can't know God comprehensively, but we can know God truly because he's revealed himself to us. So all that we know about God that God is glorious, that God is holy, that God is loving, that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is just, that God is immutable, it means he's unchanging, that God is transcendent and he's imminent, that he's majestic, and on and on and on we could go. Look, just put far more before each of those words. He's far more glorious. He's far more loving. He's far more uh, merciful. He's far more So we can grow in our fear of God through acquiring greater thoughts of God. And that's gonna move us to, to, to have this awe before him, to, have this, to want to honor him and revere him and worship him at the highest level that we could possibly exercise. And now, and now finally, check out this last statement. This is, this is so good. It is the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. You catch that? When we understand that God is, which is a question I understand for some people, but when we understand God is and the nature of this God, that he is transcendent and majestic and all-powerful, greater than we can fathom, his greatness is unsearchable, Psalm 145, verse 3 then we should have this reflex in our consciousness that's, that's pushing us to fear him, right? It's where godliness is found. So let me ask you, what's, what's your attitude before God? What's your, what's your posture before God? On just, a, on just a daily basis, like how is it that you're living your life before God? Because if we're being honest, probably many days we give God a little, what's up, you know? We give God a little wink. We give God a little, a little head nod, you know what I'm saying? What's up, God? <laughs> so this is the best we can. I mean, this is what, this is a quick story. So when I was about seven or eight years old, my dad, he's a high school basketball coach in Kentucky, very successful. Uh, he, was, uh, he was coaching this all-star team of the best players in the state. They play this Kentucky-Indiana all-star game every single year, still going. And, uh, and actually, my dad's team was playing Sean Kemp. 
He, was, uh, he went straight from Indiana to the pros, played for the Supersonics, Seattle, think Oklahoma City Thunder now. They no longer exist, but they're the Thunder now. And, uh, and so my dad was coaching this team, and there was this, this, uh, this kid, he, from my perspective now, he was like this old, awesome, you know, role model. His name was Richie Farmer, okay? Richie Farmer played at Clay County High School, and he scored 51 points in the state tournament. More, more, more points than anyone's ever scored in a state tournament game in Kentucky history. Okay, so my dad's getting a coach. This guy, Richie, signed with UK, all right? And, and I can remember, so we're getting to hang out in Indianapolis before one of the games. They play two games, one in Indianapolis, one in Louisville. And, and we're, at the, we're at the mall hanging out with the team, and I'm, of course, with my parents. And some of the players are, are walking by, and they're going up the escalator, and Richie's, like, heading the crew, you know, because he was the man, Mr. Basketball. Everyone's following Richie. And Richie hollered at me. He said, hey, Tanner. And I, I guess I was just stunned, and, and you know what I did? And that was a, that was a no-no. Because, because what happened in that moment? My dad sees me go like this to Mr. Basketball, and then he was coaching me not about basketball, but about life, you know what I'm saying? He brings me over the side, he said, you know, do you, what was that? Like, who taught you that? <laughs> who taught you to give a head nod like you're cooler than Mr. Basketball, you know what I'm saying? And... Uh, and it was a very important lesson for me to learn about respect and, and how you relate to, to people. I really don't even know where it came from, but I guess I thought it was, I wanted to be cool like him, maybe that was it. Um, so, 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 so do you ever do that with God? <laughs> just on the kind of day in, day out, week in, week out, man, that's just all it is. God, what's up? But, but not really being transformed by the knowledge of God, not, not really allowing the, 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 the character of God to, to affect everything that you are and are about in life. The New Testament may not speak of the fear of God as much as the Old Testament, but it's, it's exemplified in Christ who just read Isaiah 11 says that he operated in the fear of the Lord. Okay, so it's a prophecy about Christ. He operated in the fear of the Lord. It's assumed all throughout the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. By the way, they're united and, and interrelated. Uh, but, but then in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, such a great verse, Paul is, is meditating on the promise of God as our Father. And what does he say? He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is how we do it. And so, so this, listen to this, this fear of God then necessarily naturally leads to the second encouragement. Fear God and keep his commands, okay? So, so John Murray, he said, to sum up what he said earlier, he said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Let me say that again. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. In other words, the order I think is very important and intentional. If we fear God, if we see him for who he is, then how will we not desire to know him, to love him, and to live out his commands in our life? The one should naturally and necessarily follow the other. So the commands of God are a reflection of his character. 
And I know that we sometimes resist the commands of God. And why do we do that? Well, there are a variety of reasons. One, we think they're burdensome, right? Like God is just this kind of cosmic killjoy. He wants to kill, you know, what we're about in life. And so he just gives us commands and commands and commands and commands. And what does 1 John 5, 3 say? He says, this is love for God to keep his commands, okay? And, and what? His commands are not burdensome. They are not this weight that is just pushing us down into the ground. They are freeing to us when we love him and, and keep his commands rightly. The reflection of his character, the reflection of his intent for our lives. If we understood how seriously God takes sin and how much he delights in our obedience, we would be so much quicker to keep them. We are averse to God and his commands, not because his commands are not good, but because we are not good. So what happens is the gospel opens up our eyes to the character of God and the worth of God and the will of God and the provision of God for us to, to no longer try to keep these commands in order to please him and to earn our way to him. But the gospel comes in and it frees us so that now we are forgiven in Christ, looking to faith in him. He changes our heart from the inside out. Now we want to love God and keep his commands. And it's a really good deal. This is why the cross of Christ is so important for us. The gospel should motivate our obedience. And, and he says, look, fear God, keep his commands for what? For this is the whole duty of man. Hebrew scholar Peter N. says, the narrator could not put the matter more strongly. This is, this is it. This is our purpose. This is our goal. This is our objective. This is the point of it all. Fear God, keep his commandments. It's why God put us here. It's what he has made us for. The Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, so, so why are we here? What are we to be about in this fallen world that we experience on a daily basis? It's to know God, to fear God, to love God, to live our lives for God. And here's the beautiful thing. It's the whole duty of man. It's, it's kind of like Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else is going to be taken care of. It'll be added to you. The same could be true here. If we get this right, man, it's going to influence everything else. So, so hear this, hear this uh, whole thought of Ecclesiastes. When we worship God rightly, our work, our relationships, our wealth, our reputation, our accomplishments, our interactions, they all begin to be ordered rightly. They all matter. They all have value because we have started with the fear of God. And when we worship him, that worship then transforms everything else in our life. Why should we fear God and keep his commandments? Because that is why we are here. It's our whole duty. And to add a second motivation, 
before we wrap this up. Verse 14, he says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So think about this. God will summon each of our deeds. Every moment that we've ever, ever uh, since we've, we, 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 we've had life, every deed, every action, every thought, every word, every motivation, intention of our, of our heart, we're going to give an answer for all of them. And I know some of you are thinking, well, how does that work out with the cross? Because I thought, you know, in Jesus, man, all of our sin is, for, is forgiven. And he gives us his righteousness. And, 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 and so we won't be judged, will we? Yes, we will. So there are two clear judgments in, in the Bible, okay? One is found in Matthew 25 where we see that the sheep are separated from the goats, and that's called the great white throne judgment. It's when, when God will separate those who have believed in Christ and trusted in him and have life in him from those who have rebelled against God and continued in their rebellion and, and rejection of God. All of those sheep will go and spend eternity with God, and there's nothing better. And those who have rejected him will spend eternity in hell separated from God for, forever, which is the very definition of hell, by the way. But, but then you say, well, well Tanner, what? The, for complete forgiveness, past, present, and future, that's true? It's the beauty of the gospel, it's true? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Read Romans 8, Tanner, that's right. But there are all kinds of verses and truth that tell us that how we live our lives Every action, every thought, every deed, every motive, God does not miss one of them, and we will give an account for all of them. There are rewards in heaven. There's treasure in heaven. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that, 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 that the, the person who you know, was saved at the 11th hour of their life is not going to enjoy heaven and experience infinite joy there. Of course they will, but... We have to hold that with the fact that there is a judgment. That God will bring everything, even those things in our life, which even the closest of the close people in our life know nothing about, those secret things. They'll all be revealed. And God already has scrutinized them all. And so... The gospel not only motivates our obedience, but the gospel prepares us for judgment. And if you're, if, you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, man, that does not sound exciting, the judgment of God, well, perhaps it's because you've never met Jesus. That Jesus is the one who allows you to stand before God and to enter into his presence with joy. That's going to be the case for all believers, man. All believers enter into the joy of your master. That's what Matthew 25 says to all of us. And so we fear God so that we can get right with God and enter into his presence rightly. But, but, but then uh, there, there is this, this reality that we need to be prepared for, 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 for even those of us who have believed that we need to keep short accounts with God, that we need to practice repentance again and again and again. 
so that we might live our lives as purely as possible to bring maximum glory to him. That's really what it's all about. So as we finish with this book of Ecclesiastes, I hope we're all wrestling. I hope we're all wrestling with the, 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 the per, our purpose and, and, and where meaning and satisfaction is found in life. And I hope that you've heard that Jesus, when Jesus comes in the Gospels and he says, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, whoever comes to me will never thirst again, I am the greatest treasure that you can possibly find on this earth. I hope you're hearing him say that to you and he's saying, this is where satisfaction is found. This is where life is found. Jesus Christ lived and died that we might be satisfied in him. So think about your life. Would you consider your life just for a moment? Have you found this life in Christ? I mean, have you, have you, have you done the deal with God where you say, God, you know what? I understand that I, that I have not lived for you, that I have rebelled against you, that I have rejected you, that I've done my own thing, gone my own way, but yet you still love me enough to send Christ to be the sacrifice for my sin that I might have life in you and worship you rightly again. I mean, if, if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to receive Christ by just saying, God, I see it. I see why you made me. I see why I'm here. I want to turn from the life that I'm living and turn to follow you and trust in you and find salvation. But for those of us who, who know Jesus, maybe have known him for a long time, I mean, we need to hear the message of Ecclesiastes again and again and again and again. Because we are so easily satisfied by these lesser gods in our life. And we have constant need to come back and get our worship ordered rightly before God. So you remember we said that the quote from Jim Harrison, he, he said, the answer is always in the entire story, not just a piece of it. Let me, let me pose this to you and we'll close. That is also true of your life. The answer is always in the entire story, not just a piece of it. Look, I don't know what's going on with you right now. I don't know what's going on in your life, but, but, but let me just say it's a piece of it. And God is inviting all of us to get our story connected with his story so that your story will match up with his story and have a really, really great ending and resolution to the story of your life. But the decision is yours to make. I would plead with you to be reconciled to God and to live your life for God. That is where life is found. Let's pray.